following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're going to look in a little bit more depth at those three scripture passages that we had read out to us this morning. Three passages from Isaiah, three passages, we call them messianic prophecies. They prophesy the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. And we're going to take each of those through this Advent season and unpack them a little bit and just explore this hope and this building sense of anticipation around the coming of Jesus. So today, Isaiah 9 is uh, the first of those passages we're going to look at. If you've got a Bible, uh, open it up to Isaiah. The words will be on the screen as well, but always good to follow along in your Bible if you brought one. Isaiah chapter 9, one of the longest books in the Bible, pretty much in the middle of your Bible. If you're having trouble finding it, just flick it open right into the middle here. You're not going to be too far from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll read the first seven verses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as soldiers rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A few years ago, there was a competition uh, run by an Australian TV program for ad agencies in Australia to come up with a TV ad promoting the invasion of New Zealand. Some of you remember this? There were two ad agencies that took part in it. You can see both of the TV ads on YouTube. They're pretty classic. My favorite one was a takeoff of the 100% Pure New Zealand campaign, you know, the 100% pure. So they have this ad and it's beautiful shots of New Zealand landscape and scenery and, and the words come up 100% pure uh, and then 100% natural resources and then 0% navy, 0% infantry, 0% army and then the words 100% there for the taking. And then there are these scenes of military conquest and soldiers jumping out of planes and gunfire and then at the end, 100% too easy. It was great. It's a pretty hilarious ad. Even as a Kiwi, you have to admit, that is pretty funny, the idea of uh, an Australian invasion. And the whole thing was uh, for Australia to have another public holiday. You had to secure another public holiday, so they came up with Invade New Zealand Day. Best way for them to get another public holiday, right? Conquer the Kiwis. It'll be done by lunchtime. Then we can enjoy the rest of the day. So it is quite funny. Now, just to be serious for a moment, imagine, though, living in a country uh, where you did face the real imminent threat of attack and invasion from a neighboring country. Imagine living in a country where you had a neighboring nation with far greater military power than you that really did threaten to attack and invade and overrun your nation at any point. 
Imagine if you knew that when that nation did attack, there would be no other uh, superpower to come to your rescue. There would be no other nation that would support you. You would be basically on your own. Imagine if you knew that when they attacked you, they would almost certainly either force you all to be slaves and servants, or they would cart off most of the citizens to their country and repopulate our country with their people. Imagine if that was a real, clear, and present threat. Imagine the sense of fear that you would live with. Imagine the ongoing sense of paranoia, that sense of gloom and distress and impending doom that would just settle upon the whole country. That is basically the situation that Isaiah is speaking these words into in Isaiah chapter 9. He's writing this, he's speaking this to the nation of Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel by this stage in the 8th century. Uh, Israel had split in two. Israel was the kingdom in the north, Judah was the kingdom in the south. This is about 750 years before Jesus came. And Judah in the south is governed by King Ahaz and Judah is facing a national security crisis. There's a massive empire to the north of Judah called Assyria. And Assyria was threatening to attack Judah at any moment. This was a massive empire bent on conquest and expansion with a bloodthirsty king. They'd already moved southward toward Israel. They'd already swallowed up parts of Israel, including the region of Galilee. And Assyria had its sights set on Judah. And Judah had no one to come to its defense. And to make matters far worse, Judah was also facing the threat from the northern kingdom of Israel itself. The king of Israel had allied with another king and had already attacked and besieged Jerusalem once to try and overthrow it. They hadn't been successful that time. They had to back off, but they were going to try again. And Judah knew that it was only a matter of time before their own neighbors, their own countrymen, in a sense, came against them again. So Judah's facing this double threat of invasion from Assyria and from Israel. It has no particular strategic alliances with any other nation that's going to help it. And you can just imagine what the mood must have been on the streets of Jerusalem during this time. Just that sense of gloom and distress and fear and paranoia that must have pervaded people's conversations without much hope for the future at all. It was just a waiting game until they were attacked and overrun and taken off into exile. It was a dark, dark time, one of the darkest in the whole history of the nation of Israel. It's into the darkness of that age that Isaiah speaks these words. And these words, this prophecy, above all, is a message of hope for people that were living with a profound sense of hopelessness and helplessness. This is a message about a day that's coming when things are going to be different to the way they are now. A day is coming, says Isaiah, when a light is going to dawn in the darkness. Light in the Bible represents the presence of God, the presence of Yahweh with his people, often portrayed as light. Isaiah is saying God is going to return his presence to you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't given up on you. He hasn't abandoned you, but God will draw near with the light of his presence and it will dawn in the darkness. And when that presence comes, when the light of Yahweh comes, there's going to be joy. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Well, that's precisely what hadn't happened in Judah's day. God wasn't enlarging the nation at all. It looks like the nation was going to be obliterated. People didn't have much joy at all, but Isaiah says the day is going to come when God will restore your joy and he'll enlarge your territory. 
And as he restores your joy, he's going to bring you freedom. He is going to break the bonds of the oppressor. He's going to break the bonds of injustice. He's going to break the back of slavery. He is going to free you and liberate you as a people. And that freedom is going to bring about a day of great peace, great shalom, when every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood is destined for the fire. There will be no more warfare. There will be no more violence. There'll be no more hostilities. God's peace, God's shalom shall be the governing order. And this picture that Isaiah receives from God to pass on just burns so brightly in his heart. It was such a vivid picture. There's times in this passage when he describes this hope in the perfect tense as if it had already happened. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation. You have increased their joy. Isaiah saw it so strongly. He saw this day of hope. He spoke about it as if it was already here. And yet it was so utterly different from what Judah was facing right at that moment in their history. A message of hope in a time of incredible hopelessness. And this hope, Isaiah says, is going to come through a child. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government, the full weight of the authority of Yahweh is going to rest on his shoulders. The fullness of God's kingdom and his, his power and authority will be upon the shoulders of this child who will grow up to become a man and the ruler and the leader of God's kingdom. He's going to stand in the Davidic line, the line of David from the house of David, and he will establish the kingdom of God over all. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. That word wonderful, by the way, it doesn't just mean he's a really good guy. It doesn't just mean what a wonderful guy. It Literally, wonderful means wonder-working, worker of miracles. He's going to come as a worker of miracles. He's going to come as a counselor, a dispenser of wisdom, the one who embodies the wisdom of Yahweh. He's going to come as the mighty God, the one who works in the power and the strength of the Spirit of God. He's going to come as the everlasting Father, the one who embodies and represents the very fatherly presence of God with His people. And He will come as the Prince of Peace. The Hebrew there is Sar Shalom, the ruler of peace, the ruler whose kingdom is peace, who brings God's peace to the world. Well, it would have been a compelling vision, and no doubt that stirred the hearts of many people in Judah at the time, but history didn't really work out that way. Judah eventually did get conquered by Assyria in the 7th century. They got overrun, they got taken into exile. None of this seemed to come about. None of this hope really seemed to materialize at the time. The best and brightest of Judah got taken away to Assyria, made slaves for 70 years, and even when they came back, even when the nation came back from exile, it seemed like God's presence hadn't really returned. God's favor hadn't really returned to Israel. He hadn't really restored the fortunes of his people. He hadn't fulfilled these great promises to make Israel a great light to the nations and raise up this deliverer and establish this everlasting kingdom. Israel was still an occupied people even after they returned from exile. So centuries went by and people wondered, what's happened to this? What's happened to this prophecy? What happened to this guy, this deliverer, this leader, this ruler, this Messiah? Where is the hope that Isaiah spoke about? And then one day... An itinerant rabbi was wandering around the roads of Galilee talking about the kingdom of God and saying things like, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And people started to wonder, is this the guy? Is this the one that Isaiah spoke to us about? Matthew talks about him, the gospel writer Matthew, and he does so interestingly using exactly the same words that Isaiah had used uh, back in the 8th century BC. Matthew takes that quote from Isaiah and he applies it to this rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus. 
in the first century. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Matthew points at Jesus and says, that's the guy. That's the guy that Isaiah told us about centuries ago. This is the one. We didn't know if it was going to happen. We thought maybe God had given up on us. We were beginning to doubt. We were beginning to wonder. But this is the guy. This is the hope. This is the fulfillment. God hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't left us alone. He hasn't forsaken us. But finally, centuries and centuries later, God has raised up this deliverer. And the day of hope that Isaiah spoke about is finally here. This great ruler, this great Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, has finally come. God's kingdom is about to be established. And yet this peace that Jesus comes to bring, this peace Matthew talks about, this peace Isaiah talks about, it looked quite different to what many people in Israel would have been expecting. It's interesting that in Matthew, Matthew places this quote from Isaiah right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. Just before Jesus opens his mouth and preaches his first sermon in Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel, Matthew puts this quote right there. He wants to emphasize the fact that Jesus is coming out of this region of Galilee because that's what Isaiah said was going to happen. He's picking up on this particular detail in Isaiah 9 where Isaiah said, out of Galilee, the deliverer is going to emerge. Out of Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. That would have sounded quite strange, I think, to people in Isaiah's day. Why is the Messiah going to come from Galilee? Way up north. That's not where Isaiah was. He's down in Judah. That's not where King Ahaz was. He's in this nation of Judah. Galilee was way up north, part of the northern kingdom of Israel. You would expect the Messiah, the deliverer of God's people, to emerge from Judah, from Jerusalem, from the temple, the center of Jewish life and worship and faith. You would expect the Messiah to come from there. But no, says Isaiah, he's going to come from Galilee. Galilee of the nations. This wasn't even a pure Jewish community. It was a region that was populated by all kinds of different cultures and different ethnicities. This was true in Matthew's day as well. And it's from that area, this mixed culture, that Jesus emerges. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem, but he emerges as a public figure in Galilee of the Gentiles. And it tells you something, doesn't it, about the ministry of Jesus, who he came for. And what he came to do. The nature of this peace that Jesus came to bring. It's not peace for any one nation. It's not peace for any one group of people. He specifically comes from Galilee of the Gentiles to demonstrate the fact that God's peace, God's shalom is for everyone. It's not just a kingdom. It's not just a peace that's going to enable Israel to triumph over its enemies and to defeat anyone that stands against it. It's not just a kingdom for Jews. It's a kingdom for all. Jews as well as Gentiles. Israelis as well as Palestinians, Kiwis as well as Australians. It's for everybody from every ethnicity. This is a different type of shalom, a different type of peace, not peace at the end of a sword. This is going to be a peace for all nations centered around the love and redemption of God. 
And interestingly, as soon as Matthew has put this quote in his story from Isaiah in the ministry of Jesus, one of the next things Jesus goes on to do is preach the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he outlines what this shalom looks like in practice, what this peace of God, this peace of Christ looks like in real life. This is a demonstration of the kingdom. If you want to know what the government of God looks like, if you want to know what this kingdom of God looks like, just read Matthew 5 through 7. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's a description of life in the kingdom of heaven, life under the shalom of God, what it looks like when that peace gets into our lives and gets into the lives of of others and our relationships with people around us. And the first thing Jesus says in that sermon is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to not the triumphant, not the victorious, not those with power, but the poor in spirit. Those who have the courage and the honesty to acknowledge their own bankruptcy before God and their own spiritual poverty before God. Those who can honestly humble themselves and hold out their arms and accept God's offer of peace and accept God's offer of reconciliation. This is what Jesus primarily came to bring. Jesus stands in that gap between us and God and he brokers this beautiful shalom, this beautiful peace. It's at the heart of the kingdom of God. It's at the heart of what the Messiah came to do, to stand in the gap between God and a rebellious humanity and bridge that gap, bring us to God and bring the fatherly presence of God to us, to make peace where there had been enmity between us and God, where there's been sin, where there's been that dividing wall that keeps us from him and bars us access to his presence. Jesus has come to tear down that dividing wall of sin. In fact, Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, as Jesus has done this within his own body, within his own body on the cross, Jesus has made peace between us and God. He's brought us together within his own body on the cross by absorbing and bearing our sin, the very thing that separates us from the presence of God. So now, as we accept Jesus' offer of new life, we can be reconciled to God and we can have peace with God. Not just a little feeling of peace in your heart, Often that's what we think peace is. You know, I'm at peace with this. I've got a peace about this decision. I feel at peace with God. It doesn't really matter whether you feel like you've got peace or not. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've become united with his death and resurrection, you are at peace with God, objectively. As you're standing in your status before him, you are now reconciled to the Father and you are at peace with him. The feeling of peace might go up and down, depending on a whole lot of things in your life. But the status of peace that you stand as a reconciled child of God will not change. It's secure because of what Jesus has already done for you. He has come to bring peace. The Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, has reconciled us to the Father. So we now experience the presence of God as Father, not as condemner, not as executioner. We experience Him as Father, the fatherly presence of God. Christ has brought it to us because of the cross. But the Shalom of God goes even further than that. See, we often assume it's just about this vertical relationship between me and God. And once I'm at peace with God, that's good, deal's done, reconciliation has been accomplished. But the shalom that Jesus came to bring extends out from that into the world. It extends out through relationships, through groups and communities and nations to extend out over the entire face of the earth. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is full of. What does shalom look like? It looks like loving your enemies. What does shalom look like? Praying for those who persecute you. Helping the needy, give to those who ask you, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. This is the way of shalom. This is what reconciled relationships look like. Reconciliation is not only something that happens on the vertical axis between you and God, 
but also on the horizontal access between you and others. Jesus came to open up, open up new possibilities for social relationships in this world that are characterized by shalom, by genuine peace. And one day, Jesus promises us that shalom will prevail. When he returns again, peace is going to extend out like a river and the whole earth will be full of the shalom of God. Then we will be fully reconciled to God, to self, to others, to the world. We've looked at that in Revelation, that beautiful picture of shalom being the governing order when Christ returns. No more enmity, no more hostility, no more aggression, no more mistreatment, no more violence, no more abuse, no more tears, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because the old order of things will have passed away. All things are going to be made new, and shalom will be the rule for all, the shalom of Christ. That's the hope that we've got to look forward to. The problem is, I think, in the present, we see so little of it that it just feels sometimes like a pipe dream. You think of the words of that Christmas carol, O Holy Night. You know, the second verse of that, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is a brother and in his name all oppression will cease. Do we really believe shalom is that big? Do we really believe shalom goes that broad, that peace is that kind of vision for this world? We struggle with it because we don't see it. What we see is broken marriages and kids who hate their parents. What we see is violence and child abuse. What we see is bickering and political entrenchment and racial hostility. What we see is a world in darkness. What it feels like is that we're living back in Isaiah's day. It feels like we're back in the days of Ahaz a lot of the time. We're living in darkness and gloom and despair and we see so little of peace. It's not hard to imagine that we're back then. The sense of gloom that settles upon us so often. But what we need to remember is just what Isaiah said. That a light has come into the world and a child has been born. When Isaiah talked in this passage in the perfect tense, when that vision burned so brightly in his heart that he used the perfect tense to describe it as something that had already come, it's even more appropriate for us because it has come. Jesus has come. The light has dawned. The child has been born. The government is on his shoulders and he has already reconciled the world to God. He has already come and he has established the kingdom of God in this world. And he has secured the day when peace will be the prevailing rule. It's not a pipe dream that's really going to happen. Jesus has secured it through his own life and death and resurrection. We have this hope. And we live in this interesting place now between promise and fulfillment. Part of this prophecy of Isaiah 9 has been fulfilled because the Prince of Peace has come. But part of it hasn't. Part of it's still waiting for that future day when Jesus returns. And so we're caught in this tension. We've seen some of the hope. We've seen some of the fulfillment in Jesus. But we're still longing for the fullness of God's shalom to be revealed. And so in the present, in that place between promise and fulfillment, Jesus invites us to participate with him in bringing shalom into our world and being bearers of shalom in relationships with those around us. As those who have been reconciled to God, Jesus now initiates us as his ministers of peace, as his ambassadors of reconciliation, bringing the gospel of peace, the gospel of shalom, 
in all kinds of ways to people around us, communities around us, relationships around us. That's our invitation in the present, to bring something of God's shalom, to bring something of His new creation into the darkness and the brokenness of the present. Now, that's huge. That's a huge vision. When you think of chains shall he break for the slave is a brother and in his name all oppression shall cease, that's a big call for us to go out and just make that happen. And sometimes just by focusing on the breadth of it, it becomes vague, becomes abstract, and we just get overwhelmed by the size of the task we have. So before you go rushing out and trying to negotiate peace in the Middle East, let's just try and focus it in on the relationships that we have with people around us, the relationships with people that are close to us. I want to ask you to think for a minute of a relationship that you have right now with someone that is not characterized by peace, that is not characterized by this kind of shalom that Isaiah spoke of and Jesus brought. Now, that doesn't mean you're constantly fighting. It doesn't have to be someone that, you know, you, you, you're literally brawling with. Because a lot of the time, we have become excellent at keeping kind of a surface-level peace in relationships. This might be someone you're getting on with fine, and you're making the relationship work, but underneath, you know there are these currents of discord, and there's a lack of peace. There's a lack of real shalom and well-being and genuine love for each other. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a relationship with a child. Maybe a relationship with your mum or dad. Maybe it's a colleague. Maybe it's a friend. A relationship that you have that doesn't embody this kind of shalom. And maybe you're experiencing a kind of pseudo peace, but it's only an inch deep. I want to ask you to consider if there's anything that you can do in that relationship to work towards shalom to work towards being part of the kingdom of peace that Jesus came to bring. Now, it may be, honestly, that there's not. There's a verse in Romans 12, which is so pertinent to this, in Romans 12, 18, where Paul says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Did you hear the proviso in that verse? If it is possible. As far as it depends on you. It may not depend on you. It may not be possible. Because ultimately peace, shalom, reconciliation takes two people. It's two people in a relationship. It's going to take two people to be fully reconciled. And it may be the other person's not willing to come to the table. Maybe the other person doesn't want to pursue shalom. Maybe that there's too much distance, too much separation, too much time. Maybe the other person's passed away. Could be all kinds of reasons why you cannot pursue shalom with that person and there can't be reconciliation. Sometimes I think we need to take the guilt, the pressure off ourselves to pursue shalom where it's just not possible. Some of you may be suffocating under this guilt that you've got to make this relationship work. And the reality is Jesus doesn't call us to live at peace with everybody. He calls us to do it as far as it's possible, so far as it depends on you. And if it's not possible, don't feel guilty about that. Don't place undue pressure on yourself. But experience God's freedom from that burden. You do what you can. You show love and kindness and mercy and respect and give dignity to that person. But you may not be, it may not be within your control to achieve full reconciliation. But you may have a relationship where there is something you can do, where there is a step you can take. And it may be as simple as just adjusting your behavior. You may be acting in a way towards that person with a lot of passive aggressive behavior. You may be cranky and grumpy with them. You may lose your temper quickly. You may just be mistreating them. You may be avoiding them. You may be avoiding eye contact with them. There's all kinds of things that could go on for you to move away from shalom. And maybe there's a step that you can take, even without that person realizing it, 
just to adjust the way that you're relating, adjust the patterns of behavior that you're approaching that person with. Maybe for you there's a process of forgiveness that needs to happen. This is really hard. But maybe shalom for you, again, without that person even knowing it, you may need to initiate a process of forgiveness. Maybe there's a lot of unresolved anger. Maybe you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you're carrying around that burden, you're carrying around those scars, and it is eating you up, and it's doing damage to your life and your relationship with God and the relationships that you have now with others around you. You try to bury it, you try to submerge it, but it does not go away. The only way through this is forgiveness. The only way forward is forgiveness. God may be prompting you today to begin a process of forgiveness. And I say begin because I don't think it's something that happens overnight, forgiveness. I think sometimes we idealize it as I do this one big prayer and there's one great moment of strength and I'm done. Forgiveness is something you're going to have to do every day for a long time. You forgive the person and then you wake up the next morning, you forgive them again. And the next morning you forgive them again. And whenever those feelings surface where you, do what, you want vengeance, you want to plot their demise, you forgive them again. And you release them from the debt that they owe you. And you lay their life before Christ as well as your own. You may need to pursue forgiveness in order to bring shalom into that relationship. This week, uh, Anna was talking with Josh and uh, she gave me this permission to tell the story. She was, there was a point during the week where she lost her temper with Josh and she kind of spoke to him in an angry voice. And so she came back the next day and talked to him about it and said, oh, really sorry, Josh, you know, mummy lost her temper with you. Do you know what that means? Yes. Mummy got a bit angry with you. Do you know what that means? Yes. Mummy's very sorry. Do you know what that means? Yes. Do you think you can forgive mummy? No. <laughs> I think we've still got a little bit of work to do there. <laughs> our home is not yet characterized by shalom. <laughs> going to help our boy understand a bit more about forgiveness. But maybe that's the path for you. Maybe it is the process of asking for forgiveness maybe from somebody else or just in the quietness of your own relationship with God, starting that process of forgiving somebody who has hurt you. Maybe though it's going to take a conversation. Sometimes it does. Uh, you may have to look the person up, have coffee, have a conversation, try to do it in person and just honestly get the issues out on the table. Don't go into it in an attacking way. Don't go into it to win an argument. Don't go in it to score points. Go in it honestly with a spirit of peace to bring shalom back into that relationship. I had a great conversation like this not too long ago. There was a guy that I had a bit of a falling out with quite a long time ago, and he looked me up to his credit and wanted to chat, and we both said some stuff to each other. We both apologized. We both asked for forgiveness, and it was a really healing relationship. It just reminded me again, this stuff can happen. It can happen. You can have these conversations, really. And it's not the end of the world. It's not going to be the catastrophe that you think it's going to be. It was a really cathartic kind of experience for both of us. We prayed together at the end of it, and it just did great things to bring us back together and restore that shalom in our relationship that had been broken. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be best friends again. Doesn't necessarily mean you'll trust each other again. Doesn't mean that you somehow tolerate or overlook what has happened in the past. None of that is what reconciliation is about. It is about extending peace to the other person, seeing them as a human being made in the image of God and doing what you can to restore that community, restore that fellowship, seek forgiveness, ask for forgiveness, talk through what needs to be talked through and wish each other well. Maybe there's someone you need to have a conversation with. Maybe there's a phone call you need to make, an email you need to send or a coffee that you need to have to bring shalom into those relationships. And as we do these things, as we 
as a church commit to these kinds of practices of peace, following in the way of the Prince of Peace, we become a community of shalom. We become a church that is characterized by the kingdom of peace that Jesus came to bring, living under the Prince of Peace as the head of our church. We should be a community that embodies shalom to the world and demonstrates what a reconciled community looks like, reconciled to God, reconciled to each other. We are and should be a living witness of shalom to a watching world and a watching generation. We should be a church where we do all we can to bring shalom and reconciliation and peace into the relationships we have with one another. We should be a church where nobody ever says, I don't want to serve on a team with that person. That just should not be a part of our community life together. We should be a church where nobody ever just walks past another person intentionally avoiding eye contact on a Sunday morning because there's some unresolved issue in the relationship. We should never be a church where somebody says, well, I just cannot and will not ever forgive that person. The wound is just too deep. The scar is just too great. It may be a deep, deep wound, but this is the path of shalom. It's not an easy path. This is the road that Jesus walked. This is the road he calls us to walk for one another. A community where we're honest with each other and where when stuff messes up relationships, we deal with it honestly and face to face. If you have an issue with somebody, if somebody's wounded you, if somebody's offended you, if somebody's grieved you, go to that person. It's what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew 18. Go to your brother or go to your sister, not to your life group, not to your best friend, not to three other people first. Go to that person and have the courage to talk honestly and genuinely about the issue. It's the only way that we will increasingly become a community marked by God's shalom. So as we start out this Advent season, may this hope that Isaiah talks about here stir our hearts again. And may we open up our hearts again to the presence of the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the Messiah, who has come and who has brought peace into our lives. May the vision that Isaiah received burn so deeply in our hearts that we have this prophetic imagination to see a world as it could be, not just as it is, just as Isaiah did. May we again receive that reconciliation with God if we've not yet received it and renew that peace with Him if we've drifted far from Him. And may we accept Jesus' invitation to be ambassadors of shalom in our church, in our relationships, in our world, bringing His peace wherever we can, as far as it is possible, and so far as it depends on us, bringing shalom into relationships with others so that the light of God's presence and the light of God's peace might again dawn in the darkness of our present world. May we be a people of the kingdom of shalom this Advent season. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that everything Isaiah spoke of is found in you. We thank you that we don't live in the day where that was something still far ahead in the future. We live in the day when you have come. We live on the other side of your cross and your resurrection and all of the hope that those events have brought into our lives. Thank you that we can be reconciled to you. Thank you that regardless of how we may feel in the moment, you've brought peace into our lives. God, I pray that just in the quietness of this moment, you might bring to our minds and hearts the ways in which you're calling us to be an instrument of shalom in our world. If there's a person that we need to make peace with, would you just bring their name, their face to our mind now? If there's a step we need to take towards shalom in a relationship, maybe it's been a long time, 
but maybe there's still something that needs to be done. God, I pray you'd bring, bring that to our hearts. Just, just gently rest that conviction on us. If there's a step that you want us to take in a relationship that we have towards someone that we know. And God, give us the courage to do it. Lord, you know these things are not easy. We don't like having awkward conversations. We don't like the difficulty. We're not confrontational people. But Jesus, we know you've come as the bearer of shalom. You've called us to this. You've called us to the way of peace. And we ask for the strength that comes from your spirit to pursue shalom. This Advent season, God, if there are people in our lives that we are not living in peace with, help us to, as far as it depends on us, put things right to be vessels of your peace in the darkness of this world. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the Prince of Peace. Bring that shalom again into our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.